Section four of Jailed for Freedom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jailed for Freedom by Doris Stevens. Part two, chapter three. The last deputation to President Wilson. Of the hundreds of women who volunteered for the last Western campaign, perhaps the most effective in their appeal were the disfranchised Eastern women. The most dramatic figure of them all was Inez Milholland Boisevain, the gallant and beloved crusader who gave her life that the day of women's freedom might be hastened. Her last words to the nation as she fell fainting on the platform in California were, Mr. President, how long must women wait for liberty? Her fiery challenge was never heard again. She never recovered from the terrific strain of the campaign which had undermined her young strength. Her death touched the heart of the nation. Her sacrifice, made so generously for liberty, lighted anew the fire of rebellion in women, and aroused from inertia thousands never before interested in the liberation of their own sex. Memorial meetings were held throughout the country at which women not only paid radiant tribute to Inez Milholland, but reconsecrated themselves to the struggle, and called again upon the re-elected President and his Congress to act. The most impressive of these memorials was held on Christmas Day in Washington. In Statuary Hall, under the dome of the Capitol, the scene of memorial services for Lincoln and Garfield, filled with statues of outstanding figures in the struggle for political and religious liberty in this country, the first memorial service ever held in the Capitol to honor a woman, was held for this gallant young leader. Boy choristers singing the magnificent hymn, Forward through the darkness, leave behind the night, forward out of error, forward into light, led into the hall the procession of young girl banner-bearers garbed in simple surplices, carrying their crusading banners high above their heads, these comrades of Inez, Milholland, Boisevain seemed more triumphant than sad. They seemed to typify the spirit in which she gave her life. Still other young girls in white held great golden banners flanking the laurel-covered dais, from which could be read the inscriptions, Greater love hath no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friend. Without extinction is liberty, without retrograde is equality. As he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free. From behind the heavy velvet curtains came the music of voices and strings, and the great organ sounded its tragic and triumphant tones. Miss Maud Younger of California was chosen to make the immemorial address on this occasion. She said, in part, We are here to pay tribute to Inez Milholland Boisevain, who was our comrade. We are here in the nation's capital, the seat of our democracy, to pay tribute to one who gave up her life to realize that democracy. Inez Milholland walked down the path of life a radiant being. She went into work with a song in her heart. She went into battle with a laugh on her lips. Obstacles inspired her. Discouragement urged her on. She loved work, and she loved battle. She loved life and laughter and light. And above all else, she loved liberty. With a loveliness beyond most, a kindliness, a beauty of mind and soul, she typified always the best and noblest in womanhood. She was the flaming torch that went ahead to light the way, the symbol of light and freedom. Symbol of woman's struggle, it was she who carried to the West the appeal of the unenfranchised, and carrying it made her last appeal on earth, her last journey in life. As she set out upon her last journey, she seems to have had the clearer vision, the spiritual quality of one who has already set out for another world, with infinite understanding, and intense faith in her mission, she was as one inspired. 
Her meetings were described as revival meetings, her audiences as wild with enthusiasm. Thousands acclaimed her, thousands were turned away, unable to enter. And she made her message very plain. She stood for no man, no party. She stood only for woman. And standing thus, she urged, It is women for women now, and shall be until the fight is won. Together we shall stand, shoulder to shoulder, for the greatest principle the world has ever known, the right of self-government. Whatever the party that has ignored the claims of women, we as women must refuse to uphold it. We must refuse to uphold any party until all women are free. We have nothing but our spirits to rely on, and the vitality of our faith, but spirit is invincible. It is only for a little while. Soon the fight will be over. Victory is in sight. Though she did not live to see that victory, it is sweet to know that she lived to see her faith in women justified. In one of her last letters she wrote, Not only did we reckon accurately on women's loyalty to women, but we likewise realized that our appeal touched a certain spiritual, idealistic quality in the Western woman voter, a quality which is yearning to find expression in political life. At the idealism of the women's party, her whole nature flames into enthusiasm, and her response is immediate. She gladly transforms a narrow partisan loyalty into loyalty to a principle, the establishment of which carries with it no personal advantage to its advocate, but merely the satisfaction of achieving one more step toward the emancipation of mankind. We are bound to win. There never has been a fight yet where interest was pitted against principle, that principle did not triumph. The trip was fraught with hardship. Speaking day and night, she would take a train at two in the morning to arrive at eight, then a train at midnight to arrive at five in the morning. Yet she would not change the program. She would not leave anything out. And so, her life went out in glory in the shining cause of freedom. And as she had lived loving liberty, working for liberty, fighting for liberty, so it was that with this word on her lips she fell. How long must women wait for liberty? she cried, and fell as surely as any soldier upon the field of honor, as truly as any one ever gave up his life for an ideal. As in life she had been the symbol of the woman's cause, so in death she is the symbol of its sacrifice. The whole daily sacrifice, the pouring out of life and strength, that is the toll of women's prolonged struggle. Inez Milholland is one around whom legends will grow up. Generations to come will point out Mount Inez, and tell of the beautiful woman who sleeps her last sleep on its slopes. They will tell of her in the West, tell of that vision of loveliness as she flashed through on her last burning mission, flashed through to her death, a falling star in the western heavens. But neither legend nor vision is liberty, which was her life. Liberty cannot die. No work for liberty can be lost. It lives on in the hearts of the people, in their hopes, their aspirations, their activities. It becomes part of the life of the nation. What Inez Milholland has given to the world lives on forever. We are here today to pay tribute to Inez Milholland Boisevain, who was our comrade. Let our tribute not be words which pass, nor song which flies, nor flower which fades. Let it be this, that we finish the task she could not finish, that with new strength we take up the struggle in which fighting beside us she fell, that with new faith we here consecrate ourselves to the cause of woman's freedom, until that cause is won, that with new devotion we go forth, inspired by her sacrifice, to the end, that her sacrifice be not in vain. For dying she shall bring to pass that which living she could not achieve, women, full of democracy for the nation. Let this be our tribute, imperishable, to Inez Milholland Bosavain.
Miss Anne Martin of Nevada, chairman of the Women's Party, presided over the services. Other speakers were Honorable George Sutherland, United States Senator from Utah, representing the United States Congress, and Honorable Roland S. Mahaney, former member of Congress and lifelong friend of the Milholland family. Mrs. William Kent of California, wife of Representative Kent, presented two resolutions, which the vast audience approved by silently rising. One resolution, a tribute of rare beauty, prepared by Zona Gale, a friend of Inez Milholland, was a compelling appeal to all women to understand and to reverence the ideals of this inspiring leader. The other was an appeal to the administration for action. The pageantry of surpliced choristers and the long line of girl standard-bearers retired to the strains of the solemn recessional. The great audience sat still with bowed heads as the voices in the distance dropped in silence. Instantly the strains of the Marseillaise, filling the great dome with its stirring and martial song of hope, were taken up by the organ and the strings, and the audience was lifted to its feet, singing, as if in anticipation of the triumph of liberty. The women were in no mood merely to mourn the loss of a comrade leader. The government must be shown again its share of responsibility. Another appeal must be made to the President, who, growing steadily in control over the people and over his Congress, was the one leader powerful enough to direct his party to accept this reform. But he was busy gathering his power to lead them elsewhere. Again we would have to compete with pro-war, anti-war sentiment. But it was no time to relax. Following the holiday season, a deputation of over three hundred women carried to the White House the Christmas Day Memorial for Inez Milholland and other memorials from similar services. The President was brought face to face with the new protest of women against the continued waste of physical and spiritual energy in their battle. There is no better way to picture the protest than to give you something verbatim from the speeches made that memorable day. This was the first meeting of the suffragists with the President since the campaign against him in the previous autumn. It was only because of the peculiar character of the appeal that he consented to hear them. Miss Younger presented the National Memorial to him, and introduced Mrs. John Winters Brannan, who made no plea to the President, but merely gave him the New York Memorial, which read as follows. This gathering of men and women assembled on New Year's Day in New York to hold a memorial service in honor of Inez Milholland Boissevain, appeals to you, the President of the United States, to end the outpouring of life and effort that has been made for the enfranchisement of women for more than seventy years in this country. The death of this lovely and brave woman symbolizes the whole daily sacrifice that vast numbers of women have made and are making for the sake of political freedom. It has made vivid the constant unnoticed tragedy of this prolonged effort for a freedom that is acknowledged just but still denied. It is not given to all to be put to the supreme test, and to accept that test with such gallant gladness as she did. The struggle, however, has reached the point where it requires such intensity of effort, relentless and sustained, over the whole vast country, that the health of thousands of noble women is being insidiously undermined. If this continues, it will continue until victory is won, and we know only too surely that many women whom the nation can ill spare will follow in the footsteps of Inez Milholland. We desire to make known to you, Mr. President, our deep sense of wrong being inflicted upon women, in making them spend their health and strength, and forcing them to abandon other work that means fuller self-expression, in order to win freedom under a government that professes to believe in democracy. There is only one cause for which it is right to risk health and life. No price is too high to pay for liberty. 
So long as lives of women are required, these lives will be given. But we beg of you, Mr. President, so to act that this ghastly price will not have to be paid. Certainly it is a grim irony that a republic should exact it. Upon you at this moment rests a solemn responsibility, for with you it rests to decide whether the life of this brilliant, dearly loved woman, whose glorious death we commemorate to-day, shall be the last sacrifice of life demanded of American women in their struggle for self-government. We ask you, with all the fervor and earnestness of our souls, to exert your power over Congress in behalf of the national enfranchisement of women in the same way you have so successfully used it on other occasions and for far less important measures. We are confident that if the President of the United States decides that this act of justice shall be done in the present session of Congress, it will be done. We know further that if the President does not urge it, it will not be done. A fraction of a moment of silence follows, but it is long enough to feel strongly the emotional state of mind of the President. It plainly irritates him to be so plainly spoken to. We are conscious that his distant poise on entering is dwindling to petty confusion. There is something inordinately cool about the fervor of the women. This, too, irritates him. His irritation only serves to awaken in every woman new strength. It is a wonderful experience to feel strength, take possession of your being, in a contest of ideas. No amount of trappings, no amount of authority, no number of plain-clothesmen, nor the glamour of the gold-braided attachés, nor the vastness of the great reception-hall, nor the dazzle of the lighted crystal chandeliers, and, above all, not the mind of your opponent, can cut in on your slim, hard strength. You are more than invincible. Your mind leaps ahead to the infinite liberty of which yours is only a small part. You feel his strength in authority, his weakness in vision. He does not follow. He feels sorrow for us. He patronizes us. He must temper his irritation at our undoubted fanaticism and unreason. We, on the other hand, feel so superior to him. Our strength to demand is so much greater than his power to withhold. But he does not perceive this. In the midst of these currents, the serene and appealing voice of Sarah Bard Field came as a temporary relief to the President, but only temporary. She brought tears to the eyes of the women, as she said in presenting the California Memorial Resolutions, Mr. President, a year ago I had the honor of calling upon you with a similar deputation. At that time we brought from my western country a great petition from the voting women urging your assistance in the passage of the federal amendment for suffrage. At that time you were most gracious to us. You showed yourself to be in line with all the progressive leaders by your statement to us that you could change your mind and would consider doing so in connection with this amendment. We went away that day with hope in our hearts, but neither the hope inspired by your friendly words nor the faith we had in you as an advocate of democracy kept us from working day and night in the interest of our cause. Since that day when we came to you, Mr. President, one of our most beautiful and beloved comrades, Inez Milholland, has paid the price of her life for this cause. The untimely death of a young woman like this, a woman for whom the world has such bitter need, has focused the attention of the men and women of the nation on the fearful waste of women which this fight for the ballot is entailing. The same maternal instinct for the preservation of life, whether it be the physical life of a child or the spiritual life of a cause, is sending women into this battle for liberty with an urge which gives them no rest night or day. Every advance of liberty has demanded its quota of human sacrifice, but if I had time I could show you that we have paid in a measure that is running over. In the light of Inez Milholland's death, as we look over the long backward trail through which we have sought our political liberty, we are asking, how long must this struggle go on? 
Mr. President, to the nation more than to women alone is this waste of maternal force significant. In industry such a waste of money and strength would not be permitted. The modern trend is all toward efficiency. Why is such waste permitted in the making of a nation? Sometimes I think it must be very hard to be a president, in respect to his contacts with people, as well as in the great business he must perform. The exclusiveness necessary to a great dignitary holds him away from that democracy of communion, necessary to a full understanding of what the people are really thinking and desiring. I feel that this deputation today fails in its mission if, because of the dignity of your office and the formality of such an occasion, we fail to bring you the throb of woman's desire for freedom, and her eagerness to ally herself when once the ballot is in her hand, with all those activities to which you yourself have dedicated your life. Those tasks which this nation has set itself to do are her tasks as well as a man's. We women who are here today are close to this desire of women. We cannot believe that you are our enemy or indifferent to the fundamental righteousness of our demand. We have come here to you in your powerful office as our helper. We have come in the name of justice, in the name of democracy, in the name of all women who have fought and died for this cause, and in a peculiar way, with our hearts bowed in sorrow, for the name of this gallant girl who died with the word liberty on her lips. We have come asking you this day to speak some favorable word to us, that we may know that you will use your good and great office to end this wasteful struggle of women. The highest point in the interview had been reached. Before the President began his reply, we were aware that that high moment had gone, but we listened. "'Ladies, I have not been apprised that you were coming here to make any representations that would issue an appeal to me. I have been told that you were coming to present memorial resolutions with regard to the very remarkable woman whom your cause has lost. I, therefore, am not prepared to say anything further than I have said on previous occasions of this sort. I do not need to tell you where my own convictions and my own personal purpose lie, and I need not tell you by what circumscriptions I am bound as leader of a party.' As the leader of a party, my commands come from that party, and not from private personal convictions. My personal action as a citizen, of course, comes from no source but my own conviction, and therefore my position has been so frequently defined, and I hope so candidly defined, and it is so impossible for me until the orders of my party are changed to do anything other than I am doing as a party leader, that I think nothing more is necessary to be said. I do want to say this. I do not see how anybody can fail to observe from the utterances of the last campaign, that the Democratic Party is more inclined than the opposition to assist in this great cause, and it has been a matter of surprise to me, and a matter of very great regret, that so many of those who were heart and soul for this cause seem so greatly to misunderstand and misinterpret the attitude of the parties. In this country, as in every other self-governing country, it is really through the instrumentality of parties that things can be accomplished. They are not accomplished by the individual voice, but by concerted action, and that action must come only so fast as you can concert it. I have done my best, and shall continue to do my best, to concert it in the interest of a cause in which I personally believe. Dead silence. The President stands for a brief instant at the end of his words, as if waiting for some faint stir of approval which does not come. He has the baffled air of a disappointed actor who has failed to get across. Then he turns abruptly on his heel, and the great doors swallow him up. Silently the women file through the corridor and into the fresh air. The women return to the spacious headquarters across the park, all of one mind. How little the President knew about women! How he underestimated their intelligence and penetration of things political! 
Was it possible that he really thought these earnest champions of liberty would merely carry resolutions of sorrow and regret to the President? But this was not the real irony. How lightly he had shifted the responsibility for getting results to his party! With what coldness he had bade us concert opinion, a thing which he alone could do! That was pretty hard to bear, coming as it did when countless forms of appeal had been exhausted by which women with sufficient power could concert anything. The movement was almost at the point of languishing, so universal was the belief in the nation that suffrage for women was inevitable, and yet he and his party remained immovable. The three hundred women of the memorial deputation became on their return to headquarters a spirited protest meeting. Plans of action in the event the President refused to help had been under consideration by Miss Paul and her executive committee for some time, but they were now presented for the first time for approval. There was never a more dramatic moment at which to ask the women if they were ready for drastic action. Harriet Stanton Blatch, daughter of Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and a powerful leader of women, voiced the feeling of the entire body when she said, in a ringing call for action, "'We have gone to Congress. We have gone to the President during the last four years with great deputations, with small deputations. We have shown the interest all over the country in self-government for women, something that the President, as a great Democrat, ought to understand and respond to instantly. Yet he tells us today that we must win his party. He said it was strange that we did not see before election that his party was more favorable to us than the Republican Party. How did it show its favor? How did he show his favor today to us? He says we have got to convert his party. Why? Never before did the Democratic Party lie more in the hands of one man than it lies today in the hands of President Wilson. Never did the Democratic Party have a greater leader, and never was it more susceptible to the wish of that leader, than is the Democratic Party of today to President Wilson. He controls his party, and I don't think he is too modest to know it. He can mold it as he wishes, and he has molded it. He molded it quickly before election in the matter of the eight-hour law. Was that in his party platform? He had to crush and force his party to pass that measure. Yet he is not willing to lay a finger's weight on his party today for half the people of the United States. Yet today he tells us that we must wait more and more. We can't organize bigger and more influential deputations. We can't organize bigger processions. We can't, women, do anything more in that line. We have got to take a new departure. We have got to keep the question before him all the time. We have got to begin, and begin immediately. Women, it rests with us. We have got to bring to the President, individually, day by day, week in and week out, the idea that great numbers of women want to be free, will be free, and want to know what he is going to do about it. Won't you come and join us in standing day after day at the gates of the White House, with banners asking, What will you do, Mr. President, for one half of the people of this nation? Stand there as sentinels, sentinels of liberty, sentinels of self-government, silent sentinels. Let us stand beside the gateway where he must pass in and out, so that he can never fail to realize that there is a tremendous earnestness and insistence back of this measure. Will you not show your allegiance today to this ideal of liberty? Will you not be a sentinel of liberty and self-government? Deliberations continued. Details were settled. Three thousand dollars was raised in a few minutes among these women, fresh from the President's rebuff. No one suggested waiting until the next presidential campaign. No one even mentioned the fact that time was precious, and we could wait no longer. Everyone seemed to feel these things, without troubling to put them into words. Volunteers signed up for sentinel duty, and the fight was on. End of section 4